A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, out. I it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week's story is from Nicole Ferraro. It was recorded in August 2015 at the Bowery Poetry Club in New York City. So it's summer, and I am outside wearing jeans, sneakers, socks, a fleece jacket, gloves, and a hat. I am not in San Francisco, there is no cold spell. I am in Whitestone, Queens, where we're experiencing our standard summer swamp humidity. It's 90 degrees and I'm sweltering. But if my friends and I wanna go outside, and we do because we're 16 and we're savoring the end of summer, uh, the police and our parents and the local news have all told us that we have to dress like this to protect our skin from the helicopters that are spraying pesticides over our neighborhood. Now, if you're not familiar with Whitestone, here's what you need to know. Nothing. You don't need to know anything <laughs> about Whitestone ever. It's a totally unremarkable suburb of Queens. You can get a really good bagel at Utopia Bagels on Utopia Parkway, but apart from that, you can totally skip it. In fact, the most exciting thing to have happened in Whitestone in decades prior to this event was that we were chosen to be the filming location for the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie Eraser. And this was actually pretty exciting. They filmed across the street from my grandmother's apartment. They blew up a model home. I got to be one of those people in the background of the news waving for five seconds. Fun. But now it's three years later, summer of 1999. Arnold has since parted ways with us. And Whitestone feels like something more out of a science fiction thriller because we've been plagued with a mosquito-borne illness called the West Nile virus. And you've probably heard of the West Nile virus by now. Uh, it comes back every summer when the mosquitoes come back to town. It infects people every year. Um, it's usually detected first in birds. I assume because it's a bird's job to be a terrifying harbinger of death. <laughs> in fact, the first sign that something was wrong in Queens was that these crows were like hobbling around and looking disoriented and then just dying on people's lawns. But at the time, in 1999, we had no idea what the West Nile virus was. Nobody ever heard of it before. Um, this outbreak in Queens, which then spread to the other boroughs, was the very first outbreak in North America. And it was, month, it was a month before we had any uh, diagnosis for it. The CDC actually inaccurately told everybody that this was an outbreak of St. Louis encephalitis, which hadn't been detected in New York since the 70s. But it was this pathologist at the Bronx Zoo who didn't totally buy that. She was noticing that the birds at the zoo were dying, but only the birds that they kept outside, not any of the birds they kept inside or any of the animals that would have been more prone to this strain of encephalitis. So she got some other government researchers on board, and in time they made the connection between the dying birds and the sick people and figured out that it was actually the West Nile virus. But it was a month before we had this answer. And that's a terrifying idea in itself, right? Like, we expect when we get sick, a doctor is gonna be able to look at us and know what's wrong and why, and at least have a sense of how to go about trying to fix it. 
Um, and since we live in modern times, the good news is that that tends to happen pretty often. But sometimes it doesn't happen, and then we're forced to remember with existential horror that we're actually living in this world where we're just learning things as we go along and nobody is safe. So, so everybody's freaking out, you know, they're ducking and covering from the insecticides and they're calling the CDC to report, you know, dead birds on their lawn and it's just mayhem. And this is all especially taxing for me and my family because one of the very first people to contract this virus was my otherwise totally healthy 80-year-old grandmother, Jenny. She just collapsed one day and then she was in a coma for a month. Um, my grandmother, she was a tiny lady at 90 pounds, but she was a massive presence, like a real tough broad with a deep, husky, illiterate-ish voice to match. <laughs> that sounded a lot like this. <laughs> These hand movements, you know? And she was a uh, survivor in every sense. She lived through the depression. She lost a brother to suicide, a husband to alcoholism. She raised four girls. And she was also one of the only real constants in my life. She became a second parent to me and my younger brother when our father died when we were six and two. She was there to meet us every day after school and we would go back to her apartment and play in her bedroom with her old jewelry and scarves while she stood at the stove making us fried Italian hamburgers and meatballs. And I'm gonna say that my grandmother had uh, specific survival skills, specific ways of maintaining control in the world. And that's a polite way of saying that she was like crazy cheap and a hoarder and engaged in petty supermarket theft. <laughs> like she would roll through key food like a bandit, just passing off forged coupons and denting cans for a discount and hiding packages of chicken cutlets in her ripped coat lining and in her purse. She also wore the same house dress every day for years, like from the day I was born, and held it together where it was ripped with safety pins even though she had dressers and drawers full of new, never-worn clothing. She went as far as to use one tissue for like a week. She would keep it in her sleeve and take it out as needed and then put it back and use it again later. It, that was disgusting, honestly. I mean, we can all agree that's disgusting. But the point is that between the hoarding and all the stuff and the survival skills, it always seemed to me that if the end of the world was coming, my grandmother was gonna be ready to ride it out, she was well prepared, and she would whip up a nice meal for all the other survivors. And it was a comforting thought. But in the summer of 1999, as people were getting mysteriously ill, and dead birds were all over the place, and the air was being poisoned with pesticides, it also seemed that maybe the end of the world was here, and my grandmother was comatose in Booth Memorial Hospital, taken down by a mosquito bite. So the outside world had become unfamiliar and unsafe, and things weren't much better in my actual home. Ever since this virus befell our town and our grandmother got sick, my little brother started exhibiting these weird behaviors and these weird tics, like he couldn't walk through a room without tapping the walls a certain number of times and positioning his feet just right. It could take him over an hour to take 10 steps. Or if he and I were trying to have a conversation, he would repeat my words backwards and forwards and add phrases and make these clicking sounds with his throat. And it, it became so hard for us to talk to each other that for a while we just stopped because we didn't know what else to do. So 
for me, it felt like the world had just changed in an instant. Like all of a sudden, everything I knew was just gone. I spent that summer outside in the poisoned air, sweating through my winter clothes in the hot sun, or at home with my little brother who was totally unrecognizable, or at the hospital where my withering gray comatose grandmother didn't look anything like that tough broad that I knew. But by early fall, things started to sort of calm down. They stopped poisoning Whitestone. We could dress for the weather rather than the insect apocalypse. And um, all told, there were about 62 known cases of people in New York with severe West Nile virus, though it's suspected that more like 1,900 people were infected, though they didn't contract the full-blown virus. And there were seven total deaths, all among people 68 and above. But my grandmother woke up, and uh, she was disoriented at first. My aunt came to her hospital room uh, the day she woke up, and she brought her this gift. It was like a birdcage with a wind chime on it. You know, like some bullshit old lady gift, you know. <laughs> Nonsense tchotchke. And my grandmother picked it up, and she like examined it from all sides, puzzled, and then she put it to her ear, and she was like, hello, Angela. <laughs> but... After a month of rehab, she learned to walk again, and she came home. And she regaled everyone in Whitestone with tales of how she survived what she really thought was called the West Nylons virus. <laughs> Nylons. And so she did survive the uh, mosquito epidemic of 1999. But then on a hot July afternoon, the week before her 90th birthday, she tripped in her kitchen and she fell and broke her collarbone. And this time we knew that this was it. She wasn't strong enough to survive this injury and she was gonna die. It was officially the end of days. But one of the uh, nice things about life is that through all of its abrupt horrors and uncertainties and terrifying reminders of our general fragility, there are these glimmers of comforting constants. And my equilibrium was restored when my grandmother used her final moment in her hospital room to call me and my mom over to her bedside and point at this nurse in the hallway wheeling a supplies cart and tell us to make sure that we steal some socks and put them in our purse. Thank you. That was Nicole Ferraro. Nicole is a writer, editor, and storyteller living in New York City. Her personal essays have been published in the New York Times and elsewhere. She is also the co-host of New York Story Exchange, a monthly storytelling series at Cornelia Street Cafe. By day, she earns her keep as the editor-in-chief of Netted by the Webbies. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wechter, and Barker. I, Daniel, Christine Gentry, Skylar Bear, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Bowery Poetry Club for hosting the show, and to the CDC for doing a crazy hard job. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. 
Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.